What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. And Cole and I are joined once again by Mary Allison and my boy Bernard. What's up? Hello, hello. We're going to really focus on talking super loud in the mics this time, <laughs> Mary Allison and Bernard. No, um, we're, uh, you guys met them two episodes ago, so uh, they're they're finishing up the last week with me on rotation, so we figured we'd go out with, with a bang and cover... Uh, a pretty complex patient case. Yeah, they survived. Yeah, they did. And what a month it was. Yeah, yeah. it's been wild. Yeah, roller coaster. Best of your life. Yeah. yeah. It's a wild ride. So crazy. Best. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Best. Does Mike come in late every day? Hey, Cole. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Yeah. Yes, yes, he does. Um, I tried really hard to be on time, but then it just doesn't work out for me. Doing charity work. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> I've been out painting churches in the morning, and it's hard for me to get there on time. So, patient case, um, Bernard, you want to kind of go through some of the background information? Yeah, yeah, I can kind of walk you through. So, it's a 62-year-old African-American man who was coming in for management of stage 5 CKD and hep C. Um, his past medical history was significant for that stage 5 CKD. He had some anemia going on, uh, nephrotic syndrome, secondary hyperparathyroidism, hep C, thrombocytopenia, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, some malnutrition, and erectile dysfunction. Uh, his primary complaint when he was coming in was pretty much just some frequent episodes of hypoglycemia, and you couldn't really understand why that was happening because nothing really changed in his regimen. Um, in regards to a CKD, he'd been referred for a low-fos diet and had been scheduled with nephrology. Uh, for his hep C, he was scheduled for an ultrasound for hepatocellular carcinoma. And um, when looking at his family history, both of his parents are, are deceased, and one of his, he has one brother with an unspecified heart problem. Uh, he does drink a little bit socially, and he is a current smoker, but he denies illicit drug use and has no no drug oh, excuse me no known drug allergies. Uh, some of the labs that were ordered were a CMP, CBC with differential platelet, um, albumin to serum creatinine ratio, parathyroid, serum phosphorus, ferritin, A1C, um, his hemoglobin, um, his Hep C labs, and um, a B12 and folate. The medications he's taking right now is uh, vitamin D2, uh, 1.25 milligrams, one by mouth once weekly, amlodipine 5 once daily, furosemide 40 once daily, Novolog 70-30 mix, 40 units every morning and 20 units every evening, and nephrovite, which is just a B, B complex vitamin, he's doing one of those once daily. And then some of his labs that were standing out were his white blood cell count, um, his red, red blood cell count was uh, dropping down a little bit. His hemoglobin was down 7.4 at the last visit. Hematocrit was low. Um, RDW was low. His platelets were also low. Uh, when looking at his BMP, his EGFR was really really down there, um, down at 15. And his, his glucose looked really good. It was at 103. Um, historically, it was, it was pretty high. But at this most recent visit, it started to, to be a little bit lower than normal. Um, BUN was elevated. Serum creatinine was elevated. Potassium is 5.7. Chloride is 116. CO2 is 15. Um, this is very acidotic. And calcium was in a normal range. It was at the lower limit of normal, about 8.7. And his albumin to serum creatinine ratio was out the roof at just under 2,500. 
it's way out the roof. Yeah, it's yeah. It's higher than we'd like for yeah, sure. Way way up there. And then uh, lastly, his Hep C viral load was about six million, and his fibrosure score was 0.81, so he has cirrhosis, and both of his liver enzymes are elevated. Wah, wah. Yeah. So a lot going on with this dude. Yeah. Um, what do you guys want to start? I guess CKD. Yeah. We talked about that a little bit uh, a couple months ago, but it's a good refresher. So one of the, the things that uh, is kind of interesting about this patient is he came to his appointment. He had been on uh, the vitamin D2, like Bernard said, the 50,000 international units once weekly. Um, but one thing to kind of note is, and we've talked about this before, but as your uh, kidney function declines, when we take a vitamin D supplement, whether it's D2 from like our plant sterols or if it's D3, which is the kind of, you know, vitamin D from the sunlight production, um, it has to go through two different hydroxylation reactions. So the first one in the liver and the second one in the kidney. Uh, so if that kidney function is not you know, able to actually metabolize to uh, the vitamin D to its active form. Um, vitamin D can't, vitamin D can't do its job and absorb calcium from the diet. Calcium levels start to fall and, uh, your parathyroid hormone goes up and some other, um, things can be at play to kind of trigger your osteoclast in the bone to start breaking down, um, the, the bone mineral density and basically get the calcium from the bones that way. Um, so you might get your calcium to be slightly, um, start to normalize a little bit, but you're getting it from a source that we don't want to get it from. And so the big thing is that vitamin D that he's on isn't really doing anything for him. Um, he, he basically is, it's not able to activate it to its, its, its proper form in order for it to do its job. So it's basically taking a, a useless medication. Um, so like Bernard was saying, based on his kidney labs, um, you know, his parathyroid hormone is elevated, which we would kind of expect. Um, and that signals that, uh, maybe we need to start looking at possibly like an activated vitamin D. It's like calcitriol, um, would be a good example. Um, now this patient's calcium is on the lower side of normal. Um, and if you do the corrected calcium, it's actually even more in the normal range. Um, so it's, it's kind of a toss up as far as whether we need to go that route, um, of giving calcitriol at this, at this point. Um, I think the nephrology that we consulted with did tell us to start it, um, three days a week, basically. Um, and, uh, just kind of closely monitor his, his labs, but that is something that would be debatable. It just kind of depends on the provider that would be dealing with the patient. Um, so the big thing to monitor is going to be the, the calcium, cause you can also shoot, off shoot the calcium and send it too high in mm-hmm. this case. And then that's when you can have another set of problems. So hypercalcemia would be the big thing to kind of monitor for, as well as checking his parathyroid, checking his, um, you know, the, the, that level. If you wanted to get an activated vitamin D level, you can do a 125 dihydroxy cocalciferol level. Um, it's not usually the one that's drawn, but you can in this case to see, uh, that would be the way to kind of monitor and you'd have to just watch it pretty closely. Um, you guys want to talk about like if, if the calcium does go too high, what we can kind of do. Anybody want to take it away? Um, yeah, I can kind of take it away. You have to kind of really look at everything as a whole calcium phosphate and the parathyroid. Um, if it's, if we do initiate that calcitriol and it starts to, uh, creep up, we could consider uh, backing off the calcium and going with Sensipar. it, depending on how high it goes, uh, if it's if it's really severe hypercalcemia, then we could consider adding that on, or we could just hold the calcitriol and kind of see where it goes. And um, there's we can increase the dose and kind of titrate the the sensibar if we need to. Um, and also, you want to keep an eye on the parathyroid and kind of 
judge where that is in your decision also. So. And the Sensipar is a calcium emetic. And like I said, we've talked about this before, but um, what that's doing is it's activating that calcium sensing receptor on the parathyroid gland itself. And so not only will you bring the calcium back down again, but you're also further reducing the parathyroid um, hormone as well as the serum phosphorus levels as well. Uh, now, this patient's phosphorus is only slightly elevated. It's not to the point where we really need to put them on a phosphate binder or anything. So he was, this patient was meeting with our dietitian to kind of talk about a low-phos diet. Um, and, you know, it's something that we just have to really kind of monitor these labs and then just go back and forth whether we need to give more calcitriol or whether we need to consider a, something like Sensipar. And it's just basically keeping that balance the whole time um, until we can get them on uh, hemodialysis, which this patient is really needing to start that process now because their renal functions stage five. Yep. And I mean, you, you want to think about, is there any way that we can salvage any kidney function at all? Um, but it seems like he's probably going to be a dialysis patient. Um, so we've been talking a lot about SGLT2s and what they can do for um, CKD uh, in patients who aren't necessarily as severe as this. So would he be um, a candidate? Probably not um, for a couple of reasons. One, the high risk of hyperkalemia, we would probably say that's a no-go. Um, to the trials that we've looked at, SGLT2s in um, CKD didn't go down as low as his creatinine clearances. Um, so with the DAPA CKD trial, it went down to 25 mLs per minute. Um, the infrared kidney went down to 20 mLs per minute. So we really have an unknown benefit if you're um, going down to a, a creatinine clearance this low. And this is irregardless, I should say regardless of his... Um, of his diabetes status. This is just for CKD. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, really at this point, I mean, it's going to be a matter of just getting him on dialysis. Um, from a blood pressure standpoint, just since we're talking about, you know, kind of preventing further um, renal damage, the patient came in on only amlodipine. And so, you know, in this case, not only is his serum creatinine extremely high, his creatinine clearance low, um, but his uh, albumin creatinine ratio is, is very high as well. And so the amlodipine, and you've heard us talk about this before as well, but the amlodipine can dilate the um, afferent arterial in the nephron, which is going to increase blood flow into the glomerulus. But there's nothing on the efferent side of things. It's basically allowing that blood flow to to kind of stay stay the same on both sides of the glomerulus so that intraglomerular pressure goes up um, which can then further uh, worsen that proteinuria um, so he really needs to be on you know something to dilate the efferent ar- arterial um, to kind of reduce his risk of proteinuria while he's being you know kind of worked up for um, starting hemodialysis so there's a couple different things you could do you could potentially um, put him on an ACE inhibitor which sounds weird considering his uh his renal function is so poor. Yeah, and um, his potassium. Yeah, it's like yeah. 5.7. Yeah, and so the in, in an ideal world, we could give him maybe something like um, Veltasa or some kind of a potassium binder to maybe get his potassium lower and then consider an ACE, but right now it's too high to, to start that. Um, if his potassium was lower, um, it would be something that um, he probably would get a little bit of benefit from. Um, there's a study from 2006, uh, New England Journal of Medicine, that looked at benazapril in patients with um, end-stage renal disease. And uh, they had in that study, they, they had patients included up to a serum creatinine of 5. And um, it, it basically showed that benazapril can prolong the patient's life, prolong the time that they um, are, do, do not need to be on hemodialysis, and um, it can be beneficial. 
And so that would be something to potentially consider. Um, the big thing to kind of worry about there is the AKI risk. And so you'd have to take his serum creatinine level at baseline and then just really closely monitor for a um, 30% increase or more from his specific baseline. And if that happened, then um, we'd have to stop the ACE inhibitor. But, um, you know, while we're getting him on that, it would be important to keep him really well hydrated since a lot of times the AKI comes from dehydration. And uh, so with him being on a diuretic and all that, we'd have to kind of take all that into account and um, just really closely monitor him. But that would be one thing we could consider would be an ACE. Um, another thing you could consider from a blood pressure medication standpoint, just to help kind of with that proteinuria, would be um, verapamil or diltiazem. So those two are going to, our non-dihydroperidium calcium channel blockers are going to help dilate the afferent and the efferent arterial. And that would be something that, uh, if, since in this particular case where his potassium sits, he's contraindicated um, to getting an ACE inhibitor, um, then we may have to go that route in order to kind of help reduce that proteinuria, or at least keep it from progressing. Um, so yeah, that'd be something to kind of consider. Where does uh, endapamide fit into that equation? Um, so it really, if he needs a blood pressure medication, uh, his, his, his EGFR currently is 15. So endapamide technically can be used down to 10. Um, so if his blood pressure needs further lowering, uh, and you you can't use an ACE or he's on an ACE maybe, um, then endapamide would be potentially a good option from a thiazide standpoint. Um, there was that study that looked at, um, HCTZ and endapamide head to head in patients with chronic kidney disease and saw that you did get a further decline in renal function with HCTZ, but it was actually the reverse with endapamide, to where you actually got a, an increase in EGFR, so your, kidneys, your kidney function actually improved um, when you put them on uh, endapamide. So from, from that standpoint, plus from a you know, electrolyte standpoint, endapamide has really good stability when it comes to like you know, potassium and um, glucose and all those types of things. So it, it would be something that endapamide uh, would be my for sure thiazide um, or thiazide like uh, option of choice uh, for hypertension in this patient, um, maybe even to help with the kidneys as well. But that's kind of uh, another one we have to just base it off of you know, moving forward. The, the, the big thing we'd have to do first is figure out something to do about his proteinuria and, and at least get him off the amlodipine or add something onto it that's going to dilate that efferent arterial. Um, what else? Where are we going to go with this next goal? Any ideas? Uh, I guess. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say something interesting that I was reading in the Cadago guidelines, kind of taking a step back, going to the electrolytes to monitor with uh, calcitriol. When looking at parathyroid hormone, I was looking in there kind of see where the goal wanted to be because they were saying that they want the goal to be between 130 to 600, which was high compared to the normal standards. And so they didn't really go into why they want a, a higher parathyroid hormone in patients with stage 5 CKD. So I talked to the nephrologist at the clinic, and he was pretty much just saying that the bone is a it's a dynamic um a dynamic thing and so it needs constant build up and breakdown with the osteoclast and um, osteoblast and so if you didn't have that parathyroid hormone activity then that's when you really um, are at, at risk for uh, renal osteodystrophy interesting yeah okay yeah and that's we didn't mention that term earlier but that's technically when you have that bone breakdown due to increased parathyroid levels and not being able to metabolize uh, and activate vitamin d it's not like it's it's not an osteoporosis or osteopenia or anything like that it's, it's completely separate 
pathology, so they call it re, um, renal osteodystrophy um, to kind of separate the two and show that it's kind of what the etiology is behind it. So I'm glad you mentioned that because yeah. I forgot to say anything about it. Yeah, how about anemia next? Um, is hemoglobin's really low, 7.4 anemia in CKD, right? Yeah. So the uh, with with his anemia, I mean, obviously he's got CKD. So um, it'd be something that we would first want to look at his iron labs to see what's going on there. Um, so his ferritin in this case was normal, and um, we didn't get a T-set on him, which we probably should have. Um, so we would would also potentially check it even a serum iron just to kind of see where that's at. Um, but if iron deficiency is not um, part of it, then, um, you know, as long as like everything else was kind of in line for uh, being anemia from chronic disease um, or uh, for kidney disease in this particular case, we probably have to go with an erythropoietin stimulating agent um, in order to actually get his hemoglobin levels up. Uh, and I know that, like, for example, we have one of our internal medicine physicians that said that when he did his neurology um, rotations through during residency, they had like... Um, ESA is kind of like um, Darvacet, basically on um, like on a standing order for these patients hmm. when they would be in the clinic and you know have routine monitoring and all that. But they would get put on this to kind of help to uh, you know bring their hemoglobin levels up a little bit. Should we normalize hemoglobin levels, Bernard? We should not. Oh, okay, that's good. That choir trial. <laughs> that choir. <laughs> that choir trial, though. <laughs> um, yeah, you want to say a couple of blips about that? Yeah, yeah. So they were look at looking at um, treating the uh, hemoglobin, getting it back up to thirteen point five. And um, when you went that high, you you really increased the risk of death and hospitalization. So they they say don't go any higher than eleven point three, um, but anywhere like ten to eleven is kind of a safe bet. But yeah, anything higher than eleven point three, creeping up to thirteen point five for your hemoglobin. Yeah, you're getting into the danger zone. Yeah, which is notable because that's below what you would consider a regular hemoglobin level. Mm-hmm. But yeah, increased risk of death. Yeah. It's never good. It's never, it's never ideal. Yeah. So yeah, definitely, uh, this guy would probably benefit from, from in the ESA, and also too, like you can even though we don't have um, all of the iron labs we probably need uh, with his ferritin being normal, and then. The um, his MCV also being, um, I think it was in the 80s, yeah, I think it was normal. Um, so as long as it's not below 80, um, usually when it's below 80, that's more when we're thinking like iron deficiency anemia, that more um, microcytic anemia. And then if it goes like above 95 or especially above 100, then we're thinking more of our macrocytic, so our, like our folate deficiency, our vitamin B12 deficiency. Um, usually when it's in the um, you know, normal range with an MCV, we can more considerate uh, chronic disease. Um, mm-hmm. And then the other thing to keep in mind would be if that ferritin started creeping up, then going the other way, because ferritin's the um, the the level we draw to see, usually if it's low, because that's, that's what's involved with storing iron. Um, when the ferritin's low is what we expect in iron deficiency. When it starts creeping up the other way, uh, it's also an indication there's inflammation throughout the body. So if there's like um, rheumatoid conditions or something like that going on, uh, ferritin levels tend to go up um, because they're actually an inflammatory mediator or marker rather. So that's something uh, his ferritin level was normal. So we're thinking it's becoming it's coming directly from the his just lack of um, renal function, basically not able to produce that EPA or um, EPO. I mean. I was going to say, I was reading some literature about um, if a patient has micro and macrocytic anemia, how you could um, kind of distinguish out what's really causing the anemia is if you check an EPO level, 
um, that could be potentially something to tell you if, if it's going to be an erythropoietin issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good for sure. Yeah. I always forget you can take, you can even check an EPO level, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so kind of going back just real briefly through this. So we looked at calcitriol basically to help um, get his vitamin, his activated vitamin D levels up as well as his um, calcium being absorbed from the diet versus being um you know, being uh, broken down from the bone and getting um, absorption that way. Um, and then his phosphorus levels were controlling with diet at this point. Um, if they continue to go up uh, because as renal function declines, your body can't filter out that phosphorus as, as well. And so if that happens, then we'll consider a uh, phosphate binder. If his calcium is still low at that point, then we're going to use something like um, calcium uh, acetate. If it's in a normal range, then we'll use a non-calcium phosphate binder like um, Renbella and um, kind of just go from there. Um, so calcitriol to help get his calcium and parathyroid, his calcium up and his parathyroid down. Um, and then the other thing we didn't talk about was bicarb. So he's mm. in a kind of an acidotic state right now. So sodium bicarb would be something that we could definitely add on to uh, kind of slow his renal his renal progression or his renal decline um, and just give him an overall um, better uh, quality of life and definitely reduce that risk of having um, metabolic acidosis. Yeah, it'll help out with his hyperkalemia a little bit too. Yeah, so, right. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Right. Which you talked a little bit about potassium binders already, right? Yeah. When you're talking about ACEs. They'll, they'll tassa. Yeah. Um, and then with the, the blood pressure meds, we probably just need to get them on either an ACE if his potassium's lower, um, or verapamil or DILT, and then consider dapamide if we needed to do something as opposed to continuing the amlodipine. Right. Um, all right. So th- that's some, some renal, you know, CKD reviews. Uh, what about, uh, his, his diabetes? Um, Bernard, you said that uh, all of a sudden we, his A1C just got real, Real good, right? Yeah, yeah. I, it just kind of dropped off. I was gonna say one more thing about his kidneys. Oh yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Um, so I was I was also kind of curious about the furosemide, and I asked uh, the nephrologist about that also because I wasn't really sure if that was being used for his blood pressure. Just kind of somebody threw it on there, and so uh, they were saying that sometimes uh, furosemide can be used because it has so much activity in the in the kidney um, to kind of it's used in nephrotic syndrome, which is when you're just having that really high. Um, albumin to creatinine ratio just to kind of stimulate the kidney to get it going a little bit. Um, I just thought that was an interesting, interesting yeah. pearl. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what was his A1C before today? Did you know? A1C. You said it dropped off, right? It was above goal. Uh, let me look back at his labs. And then he ended up dropping to where he was today. Yeah, I think it was yeah. like in the mid eight to okay. nine. Yeah. It just dropped to 4.6. 4. 4.6. It's a big drop. It must be because he's evolved his lifestyle changes and everything, yeah. right? Yeah. Testing, he was on the treadmill, lost a bunch of weight. Yeah. Cut all disease, carbs. Right? No carbs. So that's, that's definitely one thing to kind of consider. If you have a patient who, you know, has, has been, especially that have been on insulin for a while, they haven't been controlled as far as their A1C goes. And then all of a sudden, without any sort of action on their part, um, their A1C gets much better controlled. Go ahead and check the kidneys because mm-hmm. insulin is metabolized in the kidney. So if your kidney function starts to rapidly decline, then your insulin all, all of a sudden is hanging around a lot more than it used to. And so it can sometimes it can be uh, the patient gets all excited because their A1C is now down. Like in this case, his A1C is in the fours, um, but it's not for a good reason. So yeah. Um, 
you know, if you haven't checked the kidneys and you see, you see that situation, and they're like, no, I haven't changed a single thing. Go, cool, that's awesome. Congrats, but we are going to do some blood work today. Yeah, and if you don't adjust this dose, it can be very dangerous because yes. it can continue to stack, which is even important with patients without kidney disease is to avoid stacking when you're using the certain insulins that aren't long-acting. It can definitely be dangerous. Yeah, so we've, we basically have stopped insulin on him at this point. Um, all right, what else do we have for him besides his hep C? We'll save that for last. I was going to mention uh, possibly the like adenonatorostatin for his diabetes risk, um, like the CARDS trial and the and the SHARP trial. They say that adding it on will kind of decrease the uh, decrease the risk of uh, cardiovascular events. Um, however, if they're going on to hemodialysis, you kind of lose that benefit. Mm. So I think that's something worth. Yeah, that'd be a, definitely a good um, discussion to have. As far, and now he's being like worked well. Yeah, if he goes to his appointment, he's uh, that's been the biggest issue with him is adherence. Um, but uh, he, he shows back up for us though. Like, uh, okay, I guess we'll just do this in house. <laughs> but doesn't go to his what? The nephrologist, like the, the, the true nephrologist. Because we have yeah. a nephrologist that's also an internal medicine physician mm-hmm. that's basically practicing internal medicine in our clinic. Um, but he has he's he scheduled him in his uh, in a nephrology clinic that. He has people there that he used to work with and stuff, and he's tried to get this guy to go a few times. Patient just doesn't do it. And so his renal function just continued to, to decline. He's like, you know, this last one he had a, um, a very serious talk about, do you, wanna, do you want to live? Because you I mean, have to go at this point. Yeah, it might be a struggle to get him on dialysis if he's having trouble even yeah. wanting mm-hmm. to go to his nephrology appointment. So I'm hoping that uh, he makes good choices and ends up going. And supposedly he has an appointment, I think, coming up in a few weeks with them. But, uh, yeah, I had a patient who was on dialysis. I was seeing him for three years and he never, never retired. He was probably 75 on dialysis, kept Jeez. working the whole time. Wow. It's brutal. Yep. Well, he wanted to, but yeah, yeah. no, that's good. I mean, I, I think, uh, I feel like that would be hard to be in a situation like having being, having to be on hemodialysis and have these health conditions and then also just sitting around at home. I feel like that would really yeah. do a number on your mental health. Right. It's probably good to stay working like that uh, all right let's see what else we got um so the torvastatin we kind of up in the air about at this point um if he's going to start hemodialysis then maybe pulled off on that um if he did have more time without it and he was just going to kind of maintain his current regimen then the torva 10 would definitely be something to consider um is from based on the cards trial like bernard was saying um a1c goal for him um kind of want to be closer to eight to be on the safer side definitely don't want a tight one yeah yeah and and if you look we haven't talked about this in a little bit but if uh if you look at you know a1c goals they, they vary pretty significantly from guideline to guideline mm-hmm. so the american heart i mean american heart american diabetes association um tends to be more seven to seven point five maybe up to eight for you know patients with you know not as much uh expected longevity um and then the ace guidelines are still for a lot of patients saying 6.5 which is craziness to me um and and, yeah 6.4 in the accord trial increased mortality but yeah Yeah. let's push him to 6.5 that's a good idea um so i don't i don't know what that's about but um the american college of physicians um they have a stipulation that says basically if the patient doesn't have a 10-year life expectancy then they don't even give a goal Mm -hmm. a1c they basically say treat the polys once the patient has no symptoms of the polys anymore then just call that their goal yeah 
Now, in this particular, because he's one of our patients from a HRSA standpoint, we'd have to get him at least below nine. Right. But um, yeah, I have. But yeah, you'd be hard pressed to if you know if he's creeping up there to want to start him back on yeah. insulin yeah. or anything yeah, like that. For sure. Really, and there's most oral things you can't even use. So. Yeah. yeah. And he's in the fours anyway, so yeah, stop, right, right, right. Stop right. all meds. But even if he pop back up to the mid eights where he was yeah, before, be totally yeah. fine. Leave yeah. him because I mean, mm-hmm. dialysis, yeah. life expectancy. Yeah. Limited, right? Absolutely. Could I mean, be for years, but it's not 10 years. Yeah, and he does, I don't think he's a candidate for a renal transplant at this point. So, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's uh, anything else before we go into Hep C? I think, like, with the vaccines we were talking about with the CKD, Prevnar, and then the Pneumovax, um, if you wanted to. Yeah, yeah, no, I, that's good because a lot of times we think of. Um, Prevnar, because how old is this patient? I forget. He's in the mid 60s? Um, he's not 62. Super old. 62. Okay. So, so he's te- not quite to 65. So if he, let's just say in a perfect world, he had no other health, he had no health conditions going on at all. 62 year old, he you know, wouldn't really even be a candidate for Prevnar. And even then, it would be like the whole new deci- dis- um, shared decision making to see if he even needed to get it. Um, so we're used to giving patients this age range, kind of waiting until they're 65 to give Prevnar. But in his particular case, because he has CKD, um, if you look at the ACIP guidelines, they, they kind of lump CKD in with a lot of the like immunocompromised patients, whether they have HIV or they have um, uh, like lymphoma, leukemia, or asplenia, you know, certain situations like that. They also include CKD in there. And so he would actually be a candidate, if he hasn't had any of the pneumonia vaccines at this point, to get Prevnar uh, first and then eight weeks later get Pneumovax. Um, and then five years after he's had Pneumovax, he can get another one, which by that time they'll have new pneumonia vaccines. Right. But um, as of where it sits right now, he would be a candidate for Prevnar, um, and, and it would actually be preferred in his in his particular situation. So it wouldn't be a shared decision-making necessarily. It would be a, let's get and get you this. Right. And um, then Pneumovax eight weeks later. And then if he was 65 or over, we'd probably have to wait a year in between, but that's basically just because of... Um, the Medicare billing and all that. And they may even make an exception for his, um, because of his health conditions, but that's, that's good. So normally speaking, if he just had diabetes and the CKD wasn't part of it, then we would just give the Pneumovax and, um, not Prevnar. Right. Boom. Um, he also needs to get, uh, I think cause his surface antibody for hep B was negative, I believe. Um, I have to double check myself on that, but he, um, he basically, uh, if he doesn't have a surface antibody, um, for hep B, um, showing that he's been immunized, he's going to go on hemodialysis is, you know, soon anyway, as well as looking at getting his hepatitis C treated. So he definitely needs to get a hep B vaccine, um, hep A vaccine as well. If his, um, IgM hep A antibody is not positive, um, and, uh, or, I'm sorry, not IgM, IgG. Um, and then the, uh, um, that you can look at the total antibody and look at that looks at IgM and IgG and see if both are negative for sure, then we're going to go ahead and immunize and um, get him for hep, hep A vaccination as well before mm-hmm. starting therapy. Um, ready to discuss this hep C real quick? Go for it. So patient, uh, his fiber short came back. Um, so fiber short, if you're not familiar with that, is a laboratory test that we can do um, that basically looks at damage to the liver. So it basically gives you a fibrosis score. Um, and then you have different stages of that fibrosis. Once you get to like F3, that's that's considered like more advanced um, fibrosis. And then when you get above 0.74, um, that's when you're considered to be cirrhotic. Um, then Do also, they have been to um, biopsy for that? 
So they, they don't have to uh, biopsy anymore. I mean, you, you can, but it's not routinely done anymore with hep C. Ultrasound? Um, ultrasound yeah. is where we need to go as far as, especially since he has cirrhosis, um, using an ultrasound to kind of look and, to, and to make sure he doesn't have any um, areas that could be potentially hepatocellular carcinoma because um, that's what we'd be the most concerned about with him. We already know he's going to be cirrhotic. Um, so technically speaking, he needs to get an ultrasound every six months for the rest of his life just to make sure he doesn't have that hepatocellular carcinoma creep in. Um, the other thing you can do if, let's say his fibrosure, like his fibrosis score wasn't well above that 0.74, if he's like kind of right on the edge, um, you can get something called a fibro scan, um, which is this... Um, ultrasound with elastography and basically you can see the the stiffness of the liver to, to kind of rule out cirrhosis or, or not uh, instead of using like the fib4 um, or those types of calculations that are more like you know based on percentage risk this is like a definitive answer um, but for him he, it's pretty obvious he's got cirrhosis and um, so we would treat him as such now he's not decompensated so his child p score is an a um, if he were to be a b or a c um, you know based on his ascites or esophageal varices things like that then he um, would be considered decompensated and that's another whole separate situation um, but for now he doesn't have any of those you know indicator his child p score is an a and so he he's literally like right on the edge too as far as he's i think he's got this score is a six and if you're a seven you're considered a b um, so he's right on the edge, but we need to get him an ultrasound, which he has not followed. I checked today, actually, and he's not followed up on that. So that's perfect. <laughs> and um, so he still hasn't got an ultrasound. And then um, really, like, we need to be just closely monitoring to make sure he doesn't start to creep into that decompensated phase because then he definitely needs to be monitored by, like, either a transplant team or um, infectious disease or GI would be a better better suited than us for sure. Um, but, uh, so his fiber short score came back. He also has, um, his quant, um, looking at his viral load, uh, it shows 5 million, 5.5 million, um, which actually isn't really that big of a, big of a viral load. We've seen significantly higher, um, but it's kind of irrelevant. The treatment's going to be the same. Um, and he's never had treatment before. Um, and you know, as long as everything's good, he gets his insurance and all that covered. Um, his, the other thing we check is his surface is a hep B surface antigen to make sure that's negative. Cause if that's positive, um, that means he's got an active hep B infection and that also throws another wrench into the mix. Um, if, if you have to have a hep B and hep C treatment, so his is negative. Um, and then, um, he doesn't have HIV either. So that's also negative. So he, he would be a pretty, sh if nothing else was going on as far as his other comorbidities, he'd be a pretty straight, you know, case, straightforward case as far as the treatment options. You basically have Maverick um, or you have your Ipclusa. Um, so either one would be appropriate options. Um, because he's compensated, you could do, uh, or compensated cirrhosis, you could do eight weeks of Maverick, 12 weeks of, of Ipclusa. And then if um, he became decompensated, it'd have to be um, longer durations of those. Um, so, you know, it's at this point it would be, we're hard pressed to get him started on therapy because the adherence part of it's so important and we can barely get him to follow up with any of his mm, current yeah. appointments. So yeah, as far tough. as prioritizing, I guess the kidneys would be the priority, right? And yeah. with him probably going on dialysis, do you put hep, hep C treatment as a priority with his, uh, you know, with his, um, I guess how long his kidneys are going to last with, or does it just depend on where his his liver is to make sure that his liver doesn't get him before his kidneys do. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just a matter of 
kind of figuring it out. He's got insurance. He can get it paid for. If he, if he now, if he is a um, liver transplant candidate, they may say to go ahead and, and not start Hep C treatment and just let him uh, be on the the liver the transplant list for that. If he's not though, then treating his Hep C probably would be once you get him on dialysis would be a good option because then you're hopefully prolonging his, his right. life and you know keeping That's, that cirrhosis from getting worse right i think the fact that he hasn't given up alcohol will play into his ability to get a transplant yeah. um but Could, also there was a there was a study that looked at epclusa in uh, 59 hep c patients that were going to undergo um hemodialysis because they were in a end-stage renal disease and um, it was both safe and effective. So, yeah. and I'm glad you brought that up too because it actually before that study, um, they were wondering if Epclusa was effective in those in that patient population. And Maverick yeah. used to be um, the more preferred option there, but now with that study, they've they've kind of said Maverick or Epclusa. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's something that the infectious disease physician that um, is a part of that uh, Southeast Viral Hepatitis case conference that they do um, every three Wednesdays out of the month where you can watch patient cases. That's how we get all of our infectious disease consults. Um, we present cases pretty much every Wednesday there, uh, but he brought that, that up. That yeah. Basically, even with renal disease, you can use both agents now because he mentioned that style. He said, good job, Bernard. Nice. Look, look at Bernard. Hey. Bernard's on it. Rockstar. Yeah. We all Not learned it on <laughs> Yeah. Couldn't so, it without you. Oh, stop. <laughs> I'll get it. You'll pass. Don't worry. <laughs> 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 only a week left you yeah. only have five more days to fail <laughs> please don't fail me please it's like i'm on the fence but um yeah anything else with this particular patient lots of stuff going on this one's tough yeah not the standard stuff either yeah. not the regular hypertension copd type deal yeah. question about his hypertension would you ever consider adding on an agent to get his potassium down just so you could put on the ace Possibly. Yeah. I mean, I think that'd be a nephrologist call, but yeah. you could consider yeah. something like Veltasa and then having him uh, just monitor his potassium pretty frequently. Yeah. If they think that that is his top priority is salvaging yeah. any kidney function they could get, then it might be worth yeah. going through that if cool. they thought they could. Yeah. Cool. For sure. Sweet. Cool. Anything else? That's all I got, man. Cool. Um, all right, guys. Well, thank you so much for listening. I hope that was helpful. Um, if, uh, if you have any questions um, about that, then definitely feel free to reach out to us on uh, any of the social media platforms. You, our email addresses will be in the show notes. And, um, you know, we'd love to hear your comments and concerns, disagreements, whatever you want to put on there. Then, uh, you know, definitely if you have anything we can do to uh, explain things better, let us know. And, um, uh, thank you guys for the support on Patreon. I hope the lectures and all that are, are doing well. People like the annual. I, cha- I, put, yeah. I put an annual membership thing on there now. It's good for you like, guys who are doing the annual. I yeah, love it. Yeah, it's yeah, great. 10%. Now we can just stop producing content. You guys are stuck. Stuck <laughs> <laughs> for a year. No, I'm just kidding. There's like, I think at this point, there's like eight, almost 80 lectures on there. They're like an hour to, you know, half an hour to an hour and a half each. And there's, probably thousands of powerpoint it's slides. basically like college for three dollars a month it, it's the cheapest college there is and i'll even print on a certificate for you that's <laughs> not going to be valid in any situation except for this podcast but um but you'll you'll feel cool about it put it on your cv we should do that we should really have a certificate yeah you got put, a certificate the other day yeah. i did for being a healthcare hero <laughs> or some nonsense yeah i mean who, who's, a participation trophy i mean who's to say it's not a real certificate who makes up certificates anyway nobody people we'll, want to make yeah. money we'll be the accrediting body we are the accrediting yeah. body yeah Self, self-proclaimed yeah if yeah. yeah if anybody can just say i got a certificate program quote unquote well, so do we, we. Should, yeah so do we <laughs> ours is better 
So okay, okay, that's that's business meeting adjourned. <laughs> um, anyways, thank you guys so much. <laughs> thank you guys so much for listening and um, for the support on Patreon and all that. It means a lot to us. Um, but yeah, we will uh, keep the episodes coming, and um, we'll hopefully see Bernard and Mary Allison again in the future. I, yeah. Hopefully, they still t- keep in touch with us. Yeah, it'll be though. it'll be Doctor Bernard and Doctor Mary Allison soon. Yeah. Uh, well, we got some time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> long yeah, yeah. no I'm just kidding be, be before you know it um, alright cool thank you guys so much for listening y'all have a great night